Hi, I'm Simibos. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Now, this is a special chat today with a new member of our team, Ellis Hall, you may have seen has just joined our organisation. Ellis is going to be our head of Carbon Partnerships. We're going to be is. So we'll talk a little bit about that, his background. Ellis, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. You're a man of few words there, aren't you, really? <laughs> Very much so. We'll get on to that a bit later. But before I, I talk about Ellis, I do want to catch up on a few things that I thought had caught my eye and I just think for you listeners are relevant. First of all, thank you for uh, subscribing. We're almost at 10,000 downloads, so brilliant. Keep it going. Please share your thoughts on what we're doing. Last week's podcast had done particularly well, which I'm not surprised was... Uh, my chat with uh, Sergei and Stanislav from Ukraine and um, the fact that they were still running, you know, a net zero business in the middle of a war zone. Since then, we've had the uh, Eurovision win as well. And that, that's a really interesting thing as well, because I'm not a big fan of Eurovision, but it was a very powerful song. And, and it shows you what's going on, that that country there in the midst of everything is still, there are still people there trying to say, look, we've got to look at the bigger picture that once this awful war ends, we can we can move on and do something. And Fuelwell in particular, I think, are doing a brilliant job. So if you're anywhere in that world that uh, can support them, you know, there are other companies out there doing great things in Ukraine, do, do do so. We've got lots of talk right now about a windfall tax. You may have seen this in Future Net Zero and, and Energy Live News, but also in general media. You know, the Energy Secretary was sort of, uh, harangued by some climate protesters uh, over the weekend and this whole thing about the windfall tax is very interesting because you could say that's exactly what we should do because the fallout probably inappropriate word but the the repercussions of this invasion and, and Russia's un, unholy war is really that it's radically shifted the price of fuel and increased the profit levels of major energy, gas and oil companies particularly, because obviously they've, they've been producing more because people have banned Russian gas and oil. And so companies are, are getting more pumped out from other places. So, you know, Shell, BP, all of these companies, Exxon, you can name them, have all been getting massive profits lately. Labour wants to make sure that we have a windfall tax on these companies. And I, there was a part of me that said, yes, you should do. You know, if they made this much money when people are suffering, they should be taxed. But there is a wider context to this. And, and someone very senior um, in the energy sector was talking to me about it and said, well, yeah, you could say that, but you've got to, you're, you're thinking short term, right? Yes, they've made a lot of money in the last three or four months since the war began. But what about the last three to five years? And also, if you look at it, we cannot do the energy transition without these big companies. Now, I know that's not popular. A lot of people hate the fact that I say that oil and gas companies are part of the solution, but they are. You can't live without what they've done. They are a vital part of our energy infrastructure. We still rely on the byproducts of oil and gas for pretty much everything. We still got a massive skill base in these companies and they are changing probably not as fast as any of us would like, but they're changing. And when you talk to people at like uh, organizations like the Energy Institute, you know, they used to have International Petroleum Week. They've rebranded at International Energy Week. The reason is they know that you can't get to net zero without Uniper and Shell and BP and Exxon and all the other big ones uh, coming along and, and, and moving. 
And so we could say that the windfall tax would be the right thing right now, but we've got to look at where the investment will come. And we cannot afford to do it as, as nations. We need private companies to do it. So my take on the windfall tax is it sounds like a very good short-term idea, but let's, let's just think about the bigger picture. Also, you may have seen reports that we published today about Alok Sharma suggesting that actually, and I agree with him, he's, he's back at COP where we were, Rob, Dimi and myself were, were last year. He's back there in Glasgow and saying that we really need to look at what's happening now makes more of a case for net zero than diminishing it. Because people are saying there's going to be a rush to oil and gas. You know, let's just go oil and gas, come and protect ourselves, build more, blah, 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 blah. But he's actually saying, no, what you've got to say is that we've got to make sure that what's happening with the crises of Russia, the repercussions still of COVID, the price increases that were going on in the energy sector, all of this points to doing more to get us all towards net zero. So for me, again, uh, yeah, you can always slag off MPs and politicians, but the fact that he's come out and said that, I think it's a fairly decent thing. And it's par for the course where, where we're sitting right now, which is despite all the stuff that's going on, I do think that we can only say that we have to do more in terms of heading towards net zero. And it will, it will make a difference for where we're going in terms of kind of uh, the, the, the amount that we're investing. Because right now, after all the double whammy of kind of, you know, COVID and now this war, money is at a premium. We've got to invest in the right things in the right time. And um, that still means doing much more in terms of net zero. There was also a really um, quite revealing call and Ellis and I will talk about this in a minute, from the IOD about having lower corporation tax to help the UK hit net zero. Now, again, if you're an environmentalist listening to this, you'll probably say, that's outrageous, businesses are evil, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, again, I hear those voices and I can understand it. But the idea is kind of saying that actually, if you want to get to net zero, it won't be achievable without everyone. And we've always said that without small businesses being the pathway. And how do you do that? You have to create lower uh, taxes and incentives to help companies to do that. Right now, let's be honest, net zero is for the big boys. Okay, It's for big companies. All the things that we've seen over the last couple of years have been big, major players talking about it, committing to it. But obviously, with what we do, with our carbon AAA program, what we're doing with the Future Net Zero Standard, you know, all the stuff we're doing with Network Net Zero is about you, if you're a small business, you know, we're a small business, and we, we need to start to do this. And it's important for landlords to be incentivized to say that, you know, they will reduce the carbon profile of their buildings, you know, because most businesses are tenants. It's important for smaller businesses to say that actually, if you do something, perhaps you get some sort of discount or some help with rates or, or or kind of taxes and I think you know what the idea of claiming for this is that this could incentivize the SMEs who are remember this 95% or something 97% of businesses are SMEs in this country that's where the vast majority of us are employed and it may not look it because you see big companies you see thousands of people coming out but in the scale of it more of us employed in small companies of 
eight to 10 people than there are in all the big corporates. And those companies need to be taken on it. So again, this whole complexity of money, tax, all of that, the easy narrative is to say, hammer companies, hammer the big ones and help reduce the financial burden on the poor. But, you know, I'm all for trying to do things that help people who are struggling. And let's, let's not shy away from the fact that loads of people are struggling right now. But I do think that in the end, you have to create the right environment for business to thrive in a better way. And that is to go greener, to go cleaner, to, to cut down their carbon footprints. So again, I think the IOD are on the right thing there. So a little bit of a, a, a chat about things that have caught my eye. Remember, read futurenetzero.com or NG Live News and you'll find daily stuff on this. And um, we've got lots more coming up, which we'll talk about a little later at the Big Zero show, which uh, I'm glad to say is absolutely rammed, which is taking place on the 21st of June. But look, let's talk to uh, Ellis. Let's bring Ellis in. And Ellis, do you want to tell the team a little bit about your background? And I like to call them the team because all our listeners are all part of this movement for net zero. And it's something that's interested you for quite a while, isn't it? The whole, you know, perhaps you could have called it sustainability in the old days, but the, the, the move to try and you know, do, doing less, you know, doing better and, and, and using less. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Zuma, anyway. And uh, a little bit about me in terms of background. I had a part of a small business when I left school. And then after doing that, I went traveling for a little bit where I was doing something very different. But I was actually just scuba diving, which was a lot of fun. And that's really where my passion for the environment and sustainability, I would say, came from. Yeah, uh, I've done a bit of that. It really opens your eyes, doesn't it, when you're down in, in the water? Yeah, massively. It was, I was only there for a year or so. But seeing the changes within that environment in such a short space of time was quite significant. And once my visa ran out, I decided that I wanted to start studying again. So started studying environmental science when I came home to the UK. And when I came home to the UK, I started working at CNG, the large gas shipper at the time and energy supplier. And unfortunately, that business went into administration after 28 years in the market. And that administration only occurred last year. And it was a brilliant organization shipping for uh, the majority of the UK energy suppliers. And unfortunately, it fell foul to the collapse of the industry. I know you touched on the high prices recently and even seen some things about the way that the business models were run in the supply market, which was uh, unfortunate. And, and as a large shipper, there's not a great deal of regulation or policy around to support shippers. So unfortunately, uh, it cost us. And yeah brought me on to new challenges. But whilst I was at CNG, I focused on their sustainability strategy and understanding how we could transition away from natural gas to develop other low carbon products that were going to support our customers within their transition. So I did that for five years or whilst studying as well um, to really kind of build up that theoretical foundation for helping businesses move towards net zero, which fortunately brought, uh, brought me on to you guys and you know when you talk about yeah i mean when you talk about the, the, the working in that um field there's a couple of things i've picked up right which is where were you diving i was diving in byron bay so oh, right, the most so australia yeah 
yeah, most easily yeah. point of mainland Australia. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did, I learned on the Great Barrier Reef and where I lived was about 20 years ago. But I think, you know, there's lots of stuff. What, what struck you, and I'm kind of going back, but I just really into it. What struck you about when you were down there? Because there's an even argument that actually scuba diving is outrageous, the carbon throw pile, you know, all the tanks and all that. But let's put that aside. What I found when I went diving is suddenly you can see, you know, what you thought was pristine waters. I, I could see plastic. I could see bits of bilge that were there. I could see bits of netting. You see beautiful, incredible wildlife. I mean, wildlife that you could, you know, you can't get close to an ape. You can't get close to a lion, right? But a, a shark can swim right past you, right? So you never get close to an apex swim. But it had a real effect on me scuba diving, not to make you an eco world, but it made you really think. What did what did it do to you? Because you said you you it, it triggered something in you. This idea of you know the, the planetary systems and stability. Why? Yeah, absolutely. So where I was diving, the most easterly point of mainland Australia, it uh, reaches the point of where it is. You get a lot of the cold water coming up from the south, but it's where it reaches the East Australian Current, which is a lot of the warm waters. Yeah, the tropical animals come down. So at that point, you often in winter you get all the big stuff. So all the big rays, the big sharks, and there are great whites around there where we were diving. And it's around this little rock called Julian Rocks, and it's a beautiful place. But then you, in the summer, you get the turtles, the leopard sharks, the manta rays. So right there in that ecosystem, there's so many different animals that are thriving together. Yeah. And it was quite phenomenal. And because it's a marine park, it's protected. So when you dive down there, you're super cautious. People are obviously not allowed to touch anything. Uh, you've got strict guidelines around the way that you can behave within the water. And when I was working at the dive center there, it was our responsibility to manage that. But what you did realize was that over a period of time, you could see the damage that was being done mm. through no mistake. It was just by accident, fins hitting the surface or yeah. hitting the and damaging the coral and then you would go to other dive sites that weren't necessarily protected and like you said you can see plastic everywhere it's not just you see a bit of plastic over there and a bit of plastic over there it was covering kind of the floors and at that point I thought how can this continue because soon enough that will transition to that marine park and where you get that abundance of life you see everything there I was kind of mesmerized when I first went diving uh, you know that that place will change and these animals that are just living down there, as much as this eco-warrior is the way that I'm sounding, it was a shame that it would be damaged through no fault of the, the animals down there. So I think doing something not necessarily directly about that marine park, but trying to learn a little bit more about it and educate myself a little bit was a key thing. And then realizing that the right thing to do was trying to get into one of these larger organizations that was a fossil fuel company that no doubt wanted to change was definitely the, the right direction for me so after my visa ran out it brought me back to the uk to, to focus on that rather than uh, running off traveling again no, no i get that but you know, obviously you know and this is the interesting thing right you did work for an oil and gas company right okay that's mm. i mean so th this is the juxtaposition that many of us find ourselves in that you kind of you appreciate the beauty you appreciate the stuff they then you go home and you come back and you work for a company that's shifting black stuff and gas around the planet right yeah. how did that square with you how because the, the classic example would be though well, you should never have done that you should never join a company like that you know if you're going to be someone that seems to kind of protect the planet and that's that's the wrong thing to do how would you answer that 
charge? Quite simply, I think that there's a lot of people out there that are doing what's right for them, what they believe is right. Yeah. Activists are really pushing yeah. the government on policy. And I believe it is definitely one angle that should be taken. Completely agree that it's the right thing to do. And bringing it to people's attention. We all know about Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, and I think what they're doing is right for them. But I also think that these companies need to trust people. They're smart enough to know what they're doing. That's why they've got so big. But if you can get into a company like that and support them through education and be kind of a, an advocate for it within the organization, once you can build up trust, you can start changing people's perspective on things. So for me, it was about doing that, trying to work with an organization to try and transition them in the right direction rather than standing on the outskirts and let's say just saying things to them or, or shouting at them. For me, it was about going inside the organization and doing something from the inside because I think that I personally felt like I could make more of an impact. Did, did, were, were, were they receptive? I mean, what? because you can't just say, hey, guys, let's just stop shipping oil. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think <laughs> these, these companies know how, they know that they want to do that. They know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. They, know they need to be changing. Everyone knows we need to be changing. It's about how you do it. I think that's the biggest challenge. You know, a company, unfortunately, is not just going to say, right, let's just shut the door and stop doing it because someone else will come in and pick up that business and, and do it for them. What they need is the right people in the right places that have got the knowledge to be able to say, right, this is the strategy that we need to be taking to support our customers, but also support our own organization and hopefully be a thought leader in, in that space, which is what we were trying to do at CNG. What, what were you trying, what were the actual sort of measures? Can you explain some of the things you tried to do to, to try and reduce, you know, the, the, the carbon and the, the impact? Yeah, so CNG itself has obviously got a very low footprint because yeah. we were an office. We didn't you have an office, one. yeah. You look at our supply chain, obviously our scope three emissions and what we were doing, like we shipped for the majority, like I said, the majority of the UK gas suppliers. And then we also had close to 50,000 commercial customers. So we weren't necessarily in the electricity space at a large scale. So for us, it was about understanding what was the direction of gas? Where was that heading? And I still think that is a question today, which direction is it heading in? And although do, you mean, I, do you mean in terms of where it's coming from, the sources of the gas or, or what? Yeah, absolutely. So we were looking at what is the future of the energy industry going to look like? So one of the main things that we looked at was biomethane because we knew that that was already ready readily available and we built partnerships so that we could actually supply biomethane at the time direct to consumers and there's still that challenge around who's it actually going to where's it actually coming from and that's where the certification schemes come in to support that is what you've seen through regos and rggos and the different types of schemes to say that this is where my gas or electricity comes from so we have that yeah. there there was huge challenges around that with the cost. We were a commercial supplier, we supplied businesses, and ultimately the cost of these certificates were up to kind of 30% higher than what their energy bill was. And so a business isn't gonna turn around and say, right, I'll pay 30% more on my energy bills than what I'm already paying. People don't yeah. wanna pay as it is, Never mind that. So there was massive challenges there. And we knew that we could do biomethane at a, a small scale, but really we were thinking about what was going to happen with hydrogen because hydrogen had to be controlled by the distribution networks and the transmission networks because 
it's a different fuel compared to biomethane or methane as, as natural gas as it is. So that was really where our focus was. And ultimately, beyond that, it was electrification and, and how that was going to support, because we knew that we needed to, to move to a, to a lower carbon future. Um, but it was going to take a little bit of time. I wanted to go into that because I just think it's relevant for where you're, where you're coming to do with us, because this is the real key that, you know, our mantra, which we always go back to better business, better planet. We can't take people from A to Z, right? It just doesn't go like that. We can't instantly shift, right? It's like running a marathon tomorrow with my gut ain't going to happen. <laughs> if I do it, I have to train. And I think we have to train ourselves culturally as businesses to make little sh shifts. So putting all that aside, what are you gonna bring to this role? Explain what your, your role will be with us, because that, I think that's an interesting one for, for our audience as well. Yeah, absolutely, of course. So hopefully I'll be able to bring something slightly new, but uh, a different perspective on things. So my role as head of carbon partnerships is to focus across three areas, really. One of them is around the carbon AAA product, and within that, it's building new partnerships within that area specifically. So businesses that are going to onboard this, because we've obviously got our accounting platform, which manages and, and monitors and calculates people's carbon footprint. Yeah. And within that, we've then obviously got the future net zero standard. So we're getting to a point where we want the future net zero standard to be accredited so that people can really believe in that standard, that they know that what we're delivering to them is in line with, let's say, the GHG protocol or ISO 14064-3, which is around verification statements on greenhouse gases. So Good job, know, you, you had that on the top of your tongue there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just so people know that their greenhouse gas statement is accurate and valid. Yeah. And that's ultimately what we want to get to. We want to get to a point where people know the product that we're delivering is genuinely having an impact. And then working closely with our solution partners within that area is to ultimately set strategies that people can work towards net zero to really focusing on what the scope one and two emissions look like so we know that's relatively straightforward they're already very well captured we know that the streamlined energy and carbon reporting that is already in place for the large organizations can also be a foundation for the smaller businesses and then it comes to the scope three and i think there's huge challenges around that and we don't have enough time to talk about it but hopefully over a period of time, supporting businesses and providing guidance on what that actually looks like. And I guess yeah. that leads me into the third area, which is the expert voice aspect, where I do have a background in environmental science. I'm going to be ingrained in this day in, day out, really understanding what's going on and hopefully being able to support businesses with this, I guess, unknown path at the moment and being able to guide them through knowledge around greenhouse gases what they mean for scope one scope two how they can integrate them into the business and hopefully taking a bit of the jargon out of what we see today and giving them guidance and tangible things that businesses can do to move in the right direction i know sumit you want to push me forward and push me in front of everybody so <laughs> i'm available to do talks with he, people he's, he's available for wedding bar mitzvahs and anything yeah. else you want, ladies and gentlemen. You name it, no, you name it. no i mean look we're, we're really happy to have you on board and, and what we're trying to do really is get people to understand because that's the real thing because you know uh look 
we're not going to we're not going to shy away from it. We're we're part, you know, we, we're a commercial organisation. We have to make money. We obviously want to do that, but more importantly, that's why we do this podcast for free. That's why we have all our free resources. We want to move people along and and educate mm. them. And you know, well, I think you can really help with that. One of the things that you've been doing though is you've been talking to some businesses, and I know we're going to hear a clip in a moment with a chat that you had. But I thought this was very interesting. So. Give the background to your, you had a chat with a little coffee company, you know, and I, what I like about this is you wanted to talk about where sustainability, what it means. And this is a real struggle for smaller businesses now is that, you know, as, as we said at the beginning of the intro with the IOD thing, you know, most people think it's for the big stuff, but actually a lot of smaller businesses where most of us work, as I said, can do things. And, and you've, you've had a nice little relationship with this, coffee place up up uh, up near um harrogate is that where they're based yeah they're based in leeds so not far in leeds right yeah so about them they are a coffee roastery that's been going nine years nearly 10 years now and they what, are, what are they called at north star coffee roasters north star right okay north star, yeah north star coffee roasters obviously riding the flag of the north with north and the name <laughs> um i think these guys have been going nearly 10 years now and they put sustainability at the heart of what they do the coffee industry is challenging in itself and holly who was the director there comes onto this and talks about colonialism and the and old infrastructures and processes that are in place that are, are really challenging and the fact that coffee is grown in places that have got these challenges that don't even have access to clean water or, or food or, or shelter all the time it's it's quite interesting and and these guys haven't focused on everything and trying to be the best at everything but what they've focused on is the things that have a massive impact on their supply chain so they know that actually they've spent a lot of time figuring out what the right thing to do is and they've tried to implement that and what they've done is they've they are now a, a thought leader in the energy in, um, in the coffee industry for being sustainable within the things that they've focused on, whether that is the supply chain and what they've done from a social sustainability perspective, but also what they've done with their, their packaging and how the fact that they're the first in the UK with this fully decomposable packaging that no other coffee industry uh, business has done. So super interesting and uh you know the full podcast that will be available as well shortly so it's yeah definitely- okay let's let's have a listen to a little bit of it because this this bit's very interesting about you know how uh, is it holly you said holly, yeah. yeah yeah how she she sees sustainability obviously we're a tiny part of a global supply chain that's something i should specify first yeah. and foremost you're not talking to the ceo of starbucks yeah <laughs> um but I guess um, the facts are that our industry is relying upon like 25 million sort of coffee producers around the world who are sort of located in 70 different countries all between the tropics, basically. And lots of those, um, the terrain that grows coffee is mountainous and volcanic and hard to access and therefore isn't ever really going to be serviced through machinery and mechanising the industry, really. So um, the focus that we've had on social sustainability, if, if that's what we're talking about, has has been, um, in all honesty, a necessary like part of us building a, a business that will last for the long term. You know, so we've sort of we're not looking at this just from the perspective of how do how do we, you know, how do we 
um, do nice things and be good people. You know, we're literally like we wanted to build a business that that stood the test of time, and and to do so, we 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 recognise that we're reliant upon that supply base. So those people need to be sort of looked after. They need to be motivated to continue farming coffee. Um, you know, they need to be resilient to like the challenges that they're facing in with regards to um, climate change. And so um, over the past ten years, we've sort of really. Um, built a sourcing policy around um, centering the people that we're reliant upon for the production of the coffee and the harvesting, um, which is essentially seen as kind of taking, a, I guess, a road less travelled. Like we try to, um, we try to where possible ask uncomfortable questions um, to really pick apart, you know, systems and structures that have been in place really since colonialism. Coffee was not a native crop. To, to the areas that it grew in, it was introduced through colonialists and therefore, you know, sort of started um, life as a commercial product built on models of slave, cheap labour. Yeah. And, and that's why we're kind of in this situation today, sort of 200 plus years later. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of been a case of us, yeah, not, not sort of just accepting um, the first answer we're given by, by well-established suppliers, but actually trying to sort of understand the reality of what goes on in terms of the flow of money down the supply chain um, the ability for producers to sort of reinvest in their business models. How do we make their business models more viable? How do we make them more profitable, but also, um, you know, delivering quality of life and, you know, um, access to healthcare and education, all those really basic things that we kind of take for granted. That's really interesting, isn't it? That she's talking about kind of, you'd think being green is all about your environment, but it's not about that. It's just, you know, the, the quality of life, the, 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 the difference it can make. That, I found that interesting. Yeah, massively. I think you, you think about it and we focus on it as a more economically developed country that being sustainable is about being green. And yeah. actually, sustainability isn't all about being green to that extent and focusing solely on the environment. But if your supply chain spans multiple countries and you have to think about what their needs are in that country, and the way that Holly talks about it and talks about the impact and the influence that they're having on the people that are growing the coffee there is quite phenomenal and eye-opening. And for them, that is how they can ensure that their supply chain is sustainable for the long run. And I think that is just as important, focusing on that social aspect of sustainability, as well as the green element, especially in the early stage, or especially right now, that's more important. I think this is really one of the key things is that there are lots of businesses and you'll be meeting people doing things, aren't there? There's loads. Of, we've we talked to several companies on the podcast alone and God knows how many we feature on the website who are just doing their own little bits and they're not getting the headlines and they're not, you know, shouting to shareholders because they don't have any. And, but they're doing things. They're making changes because they want to. Absolutely. Making changes because they want to. And I think that's where the policy bit comes in because you've got all these businesses that are saying, what can I do? What do I need to do? And obviously post pandemic now, there's challenges about staying alive, quite frankly, in yeah. terms of a yeah. set, you know, thriving in where, where everything that's going on with the economy, the cost of everything, there's challenges yeah. there in itself. And then bringing on this net zero focus as well, it's gonna be a real challenge for businesses that have no idea what to do. So the fact that you've already got people and businesses saying, what are we gonna do? How can we do this? It's basically tell me what I need to do. And I think that's great because they're managing to do that alongside 
running their business. So further support from government through policy will really kind of accelerate this, this transition for these businesses. You are obviously um, based up in the north and, you know, th there's this whole thing about levelling up and all that. Um, do you, I mean, on your personal kind of, when you talk to your friends, you talk to businesses out there, um, is, there, is there a feeling that actually some of this is happening now or is it still kind of, hey, we'll have to wait for a big hub in sort of hull for all renewable energy or, you know, more investment in nuclear up in Cumbria might make a difference. But, you know, for, for businesses, do they feel that actually they're part of something now, um, particularly in that part of the area, which definitely, let's be honest, you know, post the kind of Thatcher years and the lack of manufacturing and, and obviously the end of the coal industry, you know, really has suffered a lot and has gone into service style businesses generally. What's the kind of, when you talk to sort of businesses and, and colleagues up there, what's the kind of feeling around the whole net zero thing? Again, I think that businesses generally want to push in the right direction. I've spoke to many businesses kind of throughout the area and they're, like I said, they've obviously got their own challenges within their own business, but people do want to push forward with this. They do want to be moving, nudging the dial, should we say. It's not going to be this big transition overnight where all of a sudden they're installing carbon capture and they've got kind of negative emissions across their business. Yeah. And we know that the North East, from a perspective of being a hydrogen cluster and what that could look like, we know that the North can be a powerhouse for certain things, bring back that element of the, um, I guess, manufacturing days, but from a, from a clean perspective. And we know that people up North, as much as people down South don't think anything happens up North, it's just farmers. Uh, but up North, there are a lot of businesses that are bringing a lot of value to, to many industries. And I think that, this isn't net zero is not necessarily an industry in itself it's something that is a, an umbrella across all industries and yeah. i think that as much as we know the majority of things happen down south that net zero is definitely something that the north wants to be known for pushing forward as as best it possibly can i know that i'm a sustainability ambassador on the institute of directors for the north yorkshire uh, region and it, they're really keen to push that forward and stretch into as many businesses and infiltrate them and support them where we can and provide insight to show that actually this isn't just something that's happening down south. It, it can be something up here as well. So, yeah, I would agree that the north is a place where they want to make sure that the net zero agenda is is part of their integral strategy. Yeah. Um, you excited about this role? We hope you are. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Working with you, what could be any what better? What could be better? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that this, look, I think that what Energy Live have done today and branching off to Future Net Zero is is brilliant. I think that the reach that you guys have got, the power that you've got within the energy industry to be able to really have a voice to have an impact and to be part of that is very exciting i've got there's loads to learn uh, but there's also loads of things that i feel like i can bring to the table and i'm looking forward to working with the rest of the team but also the businesses within this sector that are all striving in the right direction and what i love about this is that we can talk about competition and having a competitive advantage and yeah yeah but actually we're all on the same team and we're all trying to do what we can do because we know that we 
we need to really. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what uh, the future is going to bring, should I say. Now we're excited to have you on board. So um, if you want to get in touch with Ellis, if you're listening and you think it's interesting what he's looking at, if you need some help, then you can just get in touch with him, uh, ellis.hall at futurenetzero.com or uh, just go onto the website and you can find him. Ellis, thanks for your time today. I'm much appreciated. Thanks, Suma. Thanks for having me. Uh, before I go, I just want to say, um, our, actually, that's another point. You can meet Ellis as well. One more can you ask? You can meet him at the Big Zero Show, which is taking place on the 21st of June uh, at the CBS Arena in Coventry. Uh, thank you for all of you who've registered. Keep going. There's a few places left. Uh, we've got pretty much the whole agenda now on the platform so you can check it out. I really am excited about what we've got planned for you on the day and lovely to see as many of you there as possible. Remember, it doesn't matter the size of your business, it doesn't matter if you're not even in business, if you just listen to this, you know, casual observer, and you're interested in when, where we're going with NetZero, then do come along. Uh, we'll be bringing you a story um, in next week's episode about a couple who uh, live in India, who live, uh, I think, in Mumbai, and they just went down and their local beach was just polluted, absolutely polluted. So instead of thinking, well, how is this going to be solved? They just got on and cleared it up. And it's a fascinating story about getting things done. And that beach now is pristine. So that'll be next week's Net Hero podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep downloading and supporting us. Really appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero, and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.